Yeah, well, good morning. Uh, as someone who is about to have one child in a, four months, I'm, I need a moment after that because uh, that looks intense. Um, but it's good to, good to have you with us this morning. Uh, my name is, is Tim, and, uh, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning, we are, we are ending our series, Church for Monday, last Sunday. Uh, and if you're new today or you've missed uh, some of the last few weeks, uh, what we've been talking about for the last eight weeks is that we want to be a church that prepares you well for your Monday life. Whatever you're doing tomorrow, we want to be a church that speaks very intentionally towards that. And so this morning, we're, we're in the final topic, right? the, last, the last sermon in the series. And we think someone who follows Jesus, who is taken up in the way of Jesus, is someone who wants to work diligently for the flourishing of all. Right? And our, our Monday lives, they're full of lots of things. They're full of relationships and family and friends and neighborhoods, all of those sorts of things. But our, like our Mondays are also full of, of work, full of putting a lesson plan together, full of attending class, full of teaching, whatever it is that you do on, on Monday. And, and we think about work a little bit differently here. For us, work is not primarily compensation, but contribution, Right, so work is it like you may not be paid for your work, you may not get a paycheck for the the like the thing that you do uh, most. So you know if you're retired and and most of your work is volunteer or it's in places where you're not getting a paycheck, like you're still working. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you're you're working, right? It, it, whether you're paid or not, work is contribution, not uh, not compensation. And so as we as we think about this topic together, I want to go to uh, it's a pretty well known verse. I'm going to read the text for us. Colossians three is where we'll be uh, this morning. I'm going to read the text, uh, pray for us, and then jump in. So hear now the word of the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as, as we open your word and we think about our work, the contribution we, we want to make tomorrow, would you, would you just lead us by your spirit and open our eyes to see um, yeah, the meaning of the work that we do on Monday? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Even though this is a sermon about the goodness of work, I want to start with like the worst job that I ever had, which was for the two months before I went to college, I worked at Pizza Hut. And I, the, my day job was I worked at a summer camp at a black church in Indianapolis, and that's what I did all day, and I loved it. It was great, but I was around kids. It was, I, I like got worn out. And then because I wanted to make as much money as possible for the, the oncoming bills in the fall at college, I took out a second job at Pizza Hut. So I would go there just completely worn out and I would make pizzas uh, for several hours. And I, I mean, I hated that job. And I'll be honest, my attitude was not great going in. I was tired. Uh, most of my friends left for college earlier than I did. So I was alone. I was miserable. And, and I hated that job. And I hated that job so much. I actually just, I began to hate pizza. Um, and I know you're like looking at me, you're like, you don't strike me as someone who hates pizza. Because um, I don't. I love pizza. But I, and I, to this day, if you brought me a box, of, you brought me Pizza Hut, I would, I would throw it in your face. I would not eat it. And we've all had those jobs. Like maybe you have that job right now. Like that's your job. That's where you're going to uh, tomorrow. Or maybe you love your job. Maybe you're, you're passionate about, 
uh, your work. And whatever it is, I mean, you're going to school tomorrow, right? And your you're, work's a long way off. Um, wherever you're at this morning, we, we, think, we think that your work matters and that Jesus cares deeply about the contribution you're going to make with the work that you do tomorrow, whether it's changing diapers, performing surgery, uh, making pizzas, right? It all matters. And so we want to think that out through Colossians 3. And I want to say three things this morning. The first is that whatever your work is, your work is seen. That God sees it and he cares about uh, whatever your work is. And, and, and I, just, I want to lean into the hardness of work. Like work is difficult. And I think a lot of times like Colossians 3 is a great text for, for those of us in our culture, right? You know, just being real, we're primarily a, a, you know, an upper middle class culture. Most of us in here, we make good, a, a decent salary with our job. We were able to choose our career. We chose our college. We chose our path um, forward. And so we hear like, whatever you do, work, work heartily for the Lord. And we're like, amen. And, and the word heartily, uh, it's actually, it's the Greek word for soul. So it's, it's work with soul, right? Work with all your soul. Work with, work with passion, and we say, we love that, right? That's, I think that's a big part of our, our cultural um, day. And yet, Paul is not speaking to those people here. He's actually speaking to people who are economically marginalized in Colossians 3. So actually, I want to back up a verse uh, and, and read the whole context of Colossians 3. Uh, verse 22, Paul writes, uh, Bond servants, some of your translations may have the word slaves there. Bond servants, bond servants is a better translation. I'll, I'll get to why in a second. Um, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work with soul, work heartily. Uh, bond servants, uh, you know, the reason why slaves is not a great translation is because when we think of slaves, we think of American history, which is chattel slavery. It was race-based. It was... Uh, you know, it was as it was more unjust even than the situation in Colossians three. But it's like, it was, this is different. Um, bond servants uh, think more. Uh, this would still be someone who's is very economically destitute, um, someone who you know is working at the minimum wage level of society. Typically, it would be someone who, uh, because they were poor, incurred debts and had to go to, to a wealthy benefactor and basically say, like, if you if you take care of me economically, I'll work for you X number. Of, of years. And so this isn't to mean to like to say the practice is good. It wasn't. Um, it was deeply dehumanizing, especially if you had a bad, uh, a bad master. But it's very differently. It's very different than slavery that we, uh, we know of. And what Paul's doing here, he's making the case that those who are, are the most economically forgotten, marginalized, those working at the bottom rung of society, like God sees them and speaks directly through his scriptures to them and to their, their work. He sees them. And I think that like that should be an encouraging thought to us, even if we're maybe like we got to more like choose our career path or we're more, uh, you know, more, maybe more on the, the higher end of the economic ladder. The reason this should be encouraging to all of us for a number of reasons. And, and first and primarily to those who are, are marginalized, that when Paul thinks of, of work, his first thought is how God has not forgotten the lowest of the low and speaks to them directly. And, and so this is where, like, this is important. And I, I want to speak to this directly because, you know, there's often an objection within Christianity. It's like, well, Christianity, you know, doesn't really have a problem with slavery. It's kind of pro-slavery. The Bible doesn't really condemn um, slavery or this system. And I, I think that's really unfair and is, is misunderstanding what the Bible is doing. And so there's lots of ways we could talk about that. That'd be like a whole hour in and of itself. But just one quick example of how what, what may look like the Bible doesn't really care about this is actually uh, speaking against this the system. 
Right? So Paul only speaks about the bondservant system at length in one letter, in one place in the New Testament. And that's the letter Philemon. And Philemon was a, he was a wealthy man. He was a man who was himself a master who had bondservants in his house. And when Paul went to the city of Colossae, which is uh, Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. When Paul uh, went to Colossae and planted a church, uh, Philemon got saved. He became a Christian. And the, the church in Colossae met at Philemon's house. So Philemon's this wealthy guy. He's got bondservants. And one of his bondservants, uh, a man named Onesimus, uh, got tired of the economic injustice and tired of the system, and he ran away from Philemon. He escaped. And, uh, you know, by one in a million chance, in his, after he's escaped, he runs into the Apostle Paul, who was most likely in prison, and Paul converts it. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And, like, you can just imagine this conversation. Like, Onesimus becomes a Christian. He's sitting down with Paul one day. They're talking, and Paul's like, Onesimus, where are you from? And Onesimus, I'm from Colossae. And Paul's like, oh, you are, like, I know someone there. Do you know Philemon? And Onesimus, like, yes, I was his bondservant. I ran away. And in that day, like, Onesimus was legally the property of Philemon. And so what Paul does is Paul, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he sends him back with a letter. And it's, it's an amazing letter because it is, it's how the Bible, t- like, it's how Paul thinks about the bondservant system. But unlike, like, our, we live in a society where we just tweet out our thoughts. We're just direct. We just tell, we just tell how we think it immediately. The Bible's, like, authors don't really do that. They're much more... They're much more passive and and subversive in the way they communicate. So Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter. And there's a bunch of stuff in there, but there's a couple things that are really interesting. One is, uh, Paul says to Philemon, listen, I could tell you what the right thing to do is and command you to do it, which is to release Onesimus, right? Don't don't make him a bondservant again. That's not right. I could command you what the right thing to do is. And then Paul says, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Uh, I don't have to command you because I know that your heart is good and you're going to do it of your own free will. Right? It's just a subversive, like, like you just, Paul just laying on thick. And even better, like Philemon would most likely have led, read this to the whole church. Right? The second thing Paul does is Paul says to Philemon, listen, I recognize the fact that the Onesimus ran away from you. That probably costs you money. Like you, you incurred a debt that costs you money, and I want you like I will pay whatever debt Onesimus owes you, whatever financial debt Onesimus owes to you, I will now pay to you. Now, of course, like as, you know, we th- if we think about this, you actually kind of you owe me eternity because I gave you the gospel, you have eternal life, you have the eternal riches of Jesus now. But if Onesimus owes you a couple hundred bucks, I'll pay you back. Right? It's just, it's just Paul is so thick with his subversiveness. And how he thinks about this, this system. And even he's doing that here in Colossians 3 and 4. It's just not as direct as we're used. And so, you know, Paul says to the bondservants, like, work heartily for the Lord. And then he speaks to the masters in verse 1. And, and here's what he says. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so here, like, what Paul's doing, he's inviting people who have bondservants, people who are wealthy and and have means, he's inviting them to reflect on this system in light of the fact that God is their master. And so think that out with me. Like, if God's my master, like, how does God treat debts? Right? Like, does he hold on to them with an iron grip and make you pay back every last penny? Right? Or, Or does Jesus, like, does Jesus incur our debt on our, like, and free us? 
right? Is, is God a master who enjoys holding people down and economically marginalizing people? Does he, like, does he enjoy, enjoy like kind of holding people in, 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 a, in a cast? Does he enjoy that? Or does he free people into new life? Like you just, you just start thinking this out. Like God is my master in heaven. What does that mean for me as, as a master? And like, it's not a surprise. And the Christians have spent the last 2,000 years, um, certainly some have tried to use this text to, to, um, to defend slavery, but most Christians have used this text to undermine slavery at every, every turn and try to free people in, into more economic opportunity rather than hold them down. There's a lot more to say on that, um, and I had a lot more originally, and then I was like, I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. So that, that's all I'm going to say for this, this moment. But that, like, Paul is undermine, undermining the system and speaking with dignity and value to those who are, are marginalized. Like, he sees people that most of our world forgets. And it's not just that he sees the marginalized, he also he sees work that is that's unseen, right? The the work that bond sermons would do was wouldn't like just would be hidden from society. And many of you, like your work is often it's hidden. Right? Think, you think about parenting, most of the parenting you do will not be remembered by anyone but you. Right? Your kids hit a certain age, then they start remembering stuff when they're young. They don't remember any of you. Like, the, you know, if your kids get sick for like two weeks and you don't sleep for two weeks and you're just picking up puke and all that stuff, like they're not gonna remember any of that but you will. And God, through like speaking specifically to the lowest of the lows, like every work God sees and cares for, whatever it is, like the work that you're going to do tomorrow that you think no one else sees, God sees that work. And this should be also like an encouragement to us, like work is hard, work is frustrating. Tomorrow you're going to have hard things to do and God sees all of that. And so Greg, uh, Greg Forrester, who uh, he's a theologian, he, he teaches at the seminary, um, that, that I went to, he's, he's thought a lot about work. He says this about the world you and I live in, where we work. He says this, the world, the world of work is broken, painful, toilsome, and frustrating. We are made for work, but in this fallen world, we must do that work under conditions that we were definitely not made for. So God knows, like he knows, uh, work is hard, it's frustrating, it's difficult, um, and he sees all of it. He sees your work. So that's point one. Point two, then, is, is your work will be rewarded. And so verse, verse 23 is, uh, you know, do everything for the Lord, right? Work for God, not for men. And then verse 24, the reason for that that Paul gives is because you have an inheritance waiting for you. And in one sense, like, that should be read positively for Christians. But I want to go a little bit, I want to go a little negative first. Because um, Paul's speaking to uh, people who probably, probably are more in our, uh, you know, our neck of the woods uh, economically, which is he has a word of warning to masters, right? Masters, treat, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. You have a master in heaven. In other words, those of economic means, you better use those means in justice and fairness because God's watching you. And so if, if, if your work is oppressive, if you mistreat those under you. If you add economic injustice through your, your work, you'll be, like, you'll be judged. That's, that's what 4.1 is saying. So if you, have, if you have power, whether it's positional, whether it's financial, it's easy to use that for yourself, to use that to your own ends, to your own gains, um, instead of, of other sinners. And so Christianity Today, they, they recently released an article um, called God of the Second Shift. And in that article, uh, there was kind of a fast food executive who's a Christian lamenting the fact that his employees couldn't, like, didn't care about the work and, you know, didn't, weren't doing good work and didn't care. And, and so the author of this article uh, asked this executive, well, how much, how much do you pay them? 
And it's just reflection of like, you know, it's, well, he didn't pay them very well. Maybe that's why they didn't care um, so much. And listen, I don't, I don't want to be economically naive. I've never put together a business plan. And so I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I don't want to be dumb. Um, and I'm, I want to stay in my lane here. And yet, like Christians of, of all different types of businesses have found ways to pay their employees at rates that are above typical in the industry. In and out's a great example of that. It's not just the best burger in the world, but it's also like they pay their employees at a rate higher than other fast food um, industries. They're run by Christians. That, that informs the way they run their, their business. And so I would just say, because I know I'm speaking to people in this room who can actually who can think through this. Um, positionally, if you can create a system in your workplace that pays people above industry rates and have a good business plan alongside it, like do that. Right? As Christians, we shouldn't just care about like, you know, doing good work, but also like creating a system that lifts other people up economically, that creates more value both in the marketplace with the products we produce, but also with the way that we're able to, to supply meaningful work to people who don't want to work at the bond service level, don't want to work at the minimum wage level. Right? And, so, and, and this is even Jesus actually talks about this. When he talks about end times judgment, he tells a, a story, an illustration. That's a, it's a business illustration. And he says, like, you, you know, there was this master. He was leaving his, 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 uh, his estate for a while, and he had put three people in charge. One person he gave one talent. One person he gave two talents. One person he gave five talents. Uh, one, you know, one of the guys hid his talent, didn't do anything with it. And when the master came back, he condemned that person, said, you're wrong. Like, you know, you should have invested it. The other two people took two talents, created four. Another person took five, created uh, five more. And Jesus says to those people, so these are people who like invested well financial resources that created more wealth for other people. Jesus says to them, um, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? You did well. You were in charge of a little. Now you'll be in charge of much much more. And so that, like, this, is, this should be an encouragement to those of us who are Christians, who are in the business world, to think not just like creating good jobs isn't just good for other people. Like God, like God looks on that and, and rewards that. It's, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because like you were nice to other people or because you were a good person. Like well done, good and faithful servant because you grew a business that created economic value for other people. It's a pretty stunning parable. And that like that's like the reward is not like reward for work isn't just the person you are. It's also the work you produce. So think about that. So that, that's one reward, right? Is, is it can either be judgment for creating more economic injustice or reward for being someone who creates more economic value for others. A second uh, way to think through like rewards for work is just like the, the work itself. Good work, well done. So one of the, uh, to me, one of the best Christian authors on work uh, it was someone named Dorothy Sayer. She wrote a book called Creed and Chaos. I highly recommend it to you. You should read it. And she, she was reflecting on, on work in one part of the book, and she says this. She says, the church's approach uh, to an intelligent carpenter, right? So someone who builds tables, who builds stuff for a living, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk or disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables, Right? The, to be a Christian at work, the first order of business is to do really good work. Right? I'm just going to get a little uncomfortable. Like, no, it's not to have a Bible study at work. It's not to find ways to share your faith. All this, that's good. Do it. But the first order of business as a Christian is to be, like, to be really good at your job. Do meaningful work. 
And if you do, if you do meaningful work, like if you do, if you're really good at your work, that will open up opportunities for like people ask why and how. Right. So last week we talked about you know the importance of sharing your faith, sharing the gospel. Like the most, the best way to do that through your vocation is to be really good at your vocation. Right. If you're real, if you're a really good teacher, like other teachers are going to ask you how. If you're really good at your work, that's going to open the door for, for more, for more conversation, for more curiosity. Right, and the best example of this, uh, or one of the good examples of this to me, is uh, when our third son, Abel, was born, um, you know, we, it was an intense birth. And we told the story before, uh, from the moment we walked through the hospital doors to his birth, Abel, like, being alive in the world, was about 25 minutes. Right, so that was a very, very intense 25 minutes for other people more so than me, obviously, namely my wife. But it was an intense, and I just remember, like, the nurses were, like, frantic. Like, they knew it was, this is happening. Like, we're going. And I just remember, like, the doctor came in, and I remember they called the doctor, and he's like, we'll be here, and if, you know, I'll be up there in a little bit. And they're like, you need to get here now. And so he gets, he comes up, and, like, he walks in the room. He just, he doesn't even, sh- he doesn't even acknowledge me, which is probably the right thing to do. Um, he just walks in. He takes his spot and Abel's born, right? And then after that, he shakes my hand and like, he, he just, he had this presence. He did an amazing job of like sort of taking all of this chaos and, and having this healthy birth. And so later after, you know, getting a chance to know him a little bit, talking to him after the birth, it did not surprise me to learn like he's a Christian, right? And even like in the birth, it was like, I want to, this guy's really good. I want, like, I want to know more about him, right? That's, who is this guy, right? And, and so as a, like the first order of, of your work as a Christian is, you know, it's not to have a Jesus fish, you know, tattooed on your face so everyone knows you're it's, it's to do really good work so that other people want to know more about who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. That's like good work is a reward in and of itself. Right? So, so your work will be rewarded, one, in, like in judgment or reward at the new heavens to earth with Jesus. Two is just the work itself is a reward. And then thirdly, uh, the reward is, is who you are, who you're becoming. Right, your work is shaping you into the person that you're becoming. And those little moments with customers or with coworkers or with clients or with patients where there's kindness instead of anger or when there's, there's understanding and listening instead of, of a quick response, like, like God is making you into that, that person. I think we ought, when we think about like, oh, I need to grow in virtue and character, we think, well, that's what small group is for or that's what Sunday like worship is. No, like your work is shaping you into who you are. And we used this quote earlier in the series. And I, listen, you need to read this book if you get a chance at some point. Uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, she writes this. She's about these ordinary moments that we face every Monday in our work. She says this. She says, The new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people. And the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. We tend to want the Christian life with the dull bits cut out. Yet God made us to spend our days in rest, work, and play, taking care of our bodies, our families, our neighborhoods, our homes. What if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning and part of the abundant life that God has for us? Right, Those little moments every day at work, they shape you deeply, so work Work with soul, right? Work with passion. Work for the Lord. Go into work, working for your God. Your work shapes you. So your work is seen. Your work will be rewarded. Um, and thirdly and finally, your work is bigger. It's bigger than you. 
which is very different. Like our culture, it says the exact opposite, right? Your work is, is for you. Make your work your identity. Make your work who you are. Do what you love. Follow your passion. That's what work work is. And I love Morton Hansen. He wrote the book, uh, Great at Work. He, he sort of he pokes fun at this a little bit, the idea that we should work, work out your passion. Um, and he tells the story of uh, Oprah goes and gives a, you know, a graduation speech, commencement address to college graduates. And she tells him, like, follow your passion, right? Do the thing that everyone's telling you you shouldn't do and go follow your heart. And so this guy uh, in the audience listens to her advice and follows his passion and takes out a bunch of debt and starts a business. He was entirely unqualified to start or lead or have. And he like, just kind of ruined his life by following his passion. And so Hanson sort of, he pokes fun at, at this and is like, why, well, this is a terrible idea to follow uh, your passion. And he says, instead of following your passion, follow purpose. And here's how he he distinguishes the, the two. He says there's, there's actually a big difference between passion and purpose. Passion is do what you love, whereas purpose is do what contributes. Passion asks, what can the world give to you? Purpose asks, what can you give to the world? Well, that's a deeply Christian way of understanding vocation. It's not like, what, what, can, what does the world owe me? What can the world give to me by me living out my own passions? But instead, like, what can I contribute? Listen, my passion is I, I want to be a professional golfer. But the idea that people coming to watch me play golf would contribute anything to their existence, is, it's laughable. Like it was just, if you came and watched me play golf, you would just be more angry and like wonder why the world exists. Like that's just, that, like there's no contribution um, there. And that's why Hanson says, don't ask, what, don't ask like what can the world give to me? Ask what, like, what contribution can, can I make? And that's why we, at, like, we wanted to find work not as compensation, not as passion, but as contribution. Because we believe, like I believe, every human being, because we are made in the image of God, regardless of like, who you are, where you've come from, every human being has a contribution. Every human being has a contribution to make. So what, what's yours? What's your contribution? And I'm aware, like all, you know, you've probably heard the sermon before, right? If, you've, if you hang out at Christ Community for long at all, we, we believe work matters, right? Our senior pastor literally wrote a book called Work Matters. So this is, this is not a surprise to you. And yet what we found as we've thought this out as a church is that like most people, if you've been around here a while, you, like you understand we have the theology, work as an idea matters, right? Vocation matters. What you do on Monday matters. And, and we all, yeah, that's important. <clears throat> Where we found... Uh, where we found we've not been helpful and not been good is, is not, like, does work matter? We all, yeah, work matters. What's hard is when we all individually start to say, well, how does my work matter? Right? How, how does my contribution matter? And what we have, what we found, our problem is it's an imagination problem. A struggle for us to all go into to our Monday life with an imagination of how our work, my work in particular, matters deeply to God. And so this is how we want to end the series. How we want to end the series is for, for each of you individually, right? whether you're still in school and thinking out like long-term trajectory, or you know, you're in your work, whether it's paid, not paid. We want you to, with an imagination, think, what is my contribution? And to, to think that out a little bit together, there, there was a study done uh, at the University of, at a University of Michigan, Michigan Hospital uh, where they had noticed like the people were more productive, the work was, was getting done better, um, 
And so why? And, and what they found was that the workers of that hospital worked with a purpose and an intentionality that was not true of other hospitals. And they focused in on one custodian and kind of tell uh, the story. And, and the custodian referred to herself not as a janitor, not as a custodian, not as a cleaner, but her role at the hospital, she called herself a healer. I was sort of like, I'm a healer. That's what she said. And so she had this holistic view of her work, which meant she worked more closely with doctors and nurses and patients. She had a sense of purpose and vision and imagination for her work that went beyond like just taking trash out or cleaning things up. But she, right, she wasn't a custodian. She was a, she was a healer. And similarly, like the, what we have to do or what you have to do, all of us individually have to do is work past my job role, my title, the physical act I do to like what's what's the contribution there? What's the like what's the imaginative work? What am I doing that is is unique? And listen, I get like that's hard. That's idealistic, right? It's, I mean, if you're sitting in an office desk all day and you're typing out TPS reports, it's like what's the point? Like, what is the contribution here? Right? Office space reference. There, you're welcome. Um, <clears throat> all of you in your mid thirties are like, yeah, that's saying. Uh, <clears throat> Like that, what is like what, whatever it is, sitting in an office, what like you have to move beyond the work to the imagination, and that's hard. And yet, like all of us, if you're a Christian, if you follow the way of Jesus, you have signed on to a story that believes that Jesus has taken everything that's wrong with us, right? Every sin, broken piece of us, every reason why we, we react angrily at people in shortness, whether uh, every, everything that we do, that, like that we regret, that we wish we could pull back, Jesus has taken every piece of that that's wrong with us individually, as well as everything broken and wrong systemically and physically in this world, creation. He's taken all of what's wrong and he's nailed it to a cross through his own son, Jesus, put it on a cross. Jesus went into a tomb. He came out of the tomb three days later and said, like, I have good news. Like, I'm making all things new, right? In other words, our story isn't just that, like, one day we'll be beamed up to heaven and and everything will be better. Like, the story is that Jesus took everything broken and wrong in this world. He took it on a cross with himself and is now going through this world announcing the kingdom of God is near. I'm making all things new. And all of us who have joined into that story, who have participated in that salvation, in that redemption, who have been given the Holy Spirit to participate in that redemption, now we, get, we are agents of that kingdom in the world, whatever we're doing on Monday. And, and so you, like, it may seem like you're just typing out reports, but there, like, there's more happening. So what is it? What's your contribution? And listen, if you're like, uh, you don't know, like my job doesn't have that. I think you're wrong. Because when, like, when I think Colossians 3, there's always one person that's going to come to mind for me. And it's someone from my high school, my senior year, uh, I had about eight minutes to eat lunch every day, uh, which is the sort of you know, efficiency you would expect at a public school. Is give, let's give the children eight minutes to eat. That makes sense. Um, and it's really, my, my class was at uh, one end of the building. The cafeteria was the other. So by the time I got to the, the lunchroom, the lines were super long. And it was, by the time I went through the line, got my food, sat down, it was like eight minutes. And so it's why I was always confused. There was one line in our lunchroom at Brownsburg High School, Brownsburg, Indiana. There was one line that was always significantly longer than the rest. And I was like, why? Like, why would you give up time to eat? Like, I had eight minutes, and I went to the shortest line. Like, why would you give up time to eat to go through this long line? And I asked people, and the reason why was what was at the end of that line, and her name was Scotty. And Scotty uh, took what is, I mean, let's just be real. A high school lunchroom is like one of the darkest places on earth, right? I mean, at least for me. Um, and she took, like, she took this place that was hectic and chaotic, and she just gave it this meaning and value so that kids 
would go through her line intentionally so they could have that one brief interaction with her every day. And so one day I found, I'm like, all right, I got to see what the fuss is about. And so I go in through the line and sure enough, like she's just this warm, she remembered your name. She cared about you deeply. And she wasn't just a lunch lady. So I don't know what her imaginative work was like to go into work with that sort of, of approach and spirit, but she, she had it. And the reason she had it, the reason why her line was longer than everyone else, why kids gave up time to eat lunch with their friends so they could have this one brief encounter with her, the reason why was what was written above her head on a piece of paper. And after you, you, as you're talking to her, it was right there above her. What was written above her was whatever you do, work heartily with all your heart. You're working for God and not for men. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we now turn to sing and reflect on, on the gospel that Jesus uh, saves us into, I pray your spirit would be at work in, in each of us, giving us the imagination for how our work matters and how you want to use us in our Monday life to announce the good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is making all things new. We can't, like, we can't do that for everybody. Like, it's, all of us have to do that work individually. And so as we sing, as we reflect, give us the imagination. Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.